Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Scripture Chronicles podcast. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan, and joining me yet again is Corey Howitt. Corey, how are you doing today? Doing really good. And we are on the upswing, the finishing episode of Leviticus, so that feels good. We're going to go ahead and give an overview episode of the entire book of Leviticus, just as we've done for Genesis and Exodus up until this point. That being said, if you would like to go back later on and re-listen to just the overview episodes to get a refresher course, that's what these are designed to do. So there's not going to be a recap in today's episode because the entire episode is the recap. So let's just go ahead and jump into it. The book of Leviticus is a very dense book in the respect that it is a lot of law code. It really serves to sever the narrative element that's been going on up until this point and just jump us straight into law code. But that being said, it serves a very specific purpose, not only for us, but also within the narrative. And so we mentioned at the beginning of the outset when we first started Leviticus that at the end of Exodus, we were left with a problem. And the problem that we're left with is that Moses cannot go in to the holy place. He cannot go before God, which is really odd considering the fact that the entirety of Exodus had Moses and God meeting face to face. But nevertheless, nobody, including Moses at the end of Exodus, can go and see God. So that's the problem. And then Leviticus serves to remedy that problem. So how can the people come to see God face to face? Well, they can be holy. And so that is the major thesis of Leviticus. Be holy as Yahweh is holy, and then you can have access to Yahweh. And so you can be Yahweh's people, and Yahweh can be your God. So that's what we're left with at the outset as the thesis of the book. And that's what we're going to seek to explain a little further in our recap today. So Corey, take it away. Yeah, let's uh, look at the big structure of Leviticus This is something we did at the beginning, and our episodes of Leviticus have followed this structure, but let's go through it again. So we talked about Leviticus being a chiasm, meaning there's one center point, and that center point is thing to focus on in the book. On either side of that middle section of the book is a mirror. How the book begins is the same way in which the book ends. In the first seven chapters, we're talking about rituals. In the last three chapters, we're talking about rituals. And then at the center of the book, we have the Day of Atonement, which is a really important day. But oddly enough, it's also mentioned again in the feasts. But Day of Atonement is just so important for our idea of atonement, of sacrifices, of holiness. It's stuck right in the middle with great detail. And then The last section of the book, it kind of doesn't fit into this chiasm, but the ending focuses on blessings and curses or obedience. In chapter 27, there's also vows. So various laws about vows. So kind of a strange ending, but we'll get there. But going back into the first section of the book, section one, chapters one through seven will talk about sacrifices. And in those seven chapters, they talk about five sacrifices. And so the five sacrifices are burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. So two of these sacrifices, the grain and peace offerings, are ways of showing gratitude to God. 
And then the other three offerings, the burnt, sin, and guilt offerings, they're ways of repenting, where the animals being offered symbolically shows the taking away of sin and of God's wrath being put onto the innocent animal instead of on the human. Because back in the fall of Genesis chapter 3, we learned that the wages of sin is death. But instead of humans needing to die in that moment, God's making a way to where an animal can take their place. This animal can atone for their sin. So really big theological point here. And we've kind of seen this idea shared earlier on in the book. These sacrifices also give more sense to earlier sacrifices in the book. Like, for example, after Adam and Eve sin, God makes them garments out of animals. So we see that animals were killed once they sin. We also get names to the sacrifices that Cain and Abel offered. Right? So why are they even bringing sacrifices? What do their sacrifices mean? And say, oh, one of them is you know, giving a grain offering. The other one's giving a sin offering. And you go on and you look at the story of Abraham. We see that Abraham himself was making an offering in chapter 15. And the details it gave in chapter 15, although it sounded kind of weird, things like he killed the birds and tore them but didn't tear them all the way apart. Oh, well, that's the instructions. And so when Abraham kills the birds for his sacrifice and tears the birds apart, but not completely, we see, oh, this is in accordance with the offerings in Leviticus. So just really cool that we see explanations in a sense of earlier passages. But then all of these offerings are showing us one way in which these sacrifices are working is to show humans how to give thanks to God. Another way is to show humans how to rightly repent. And we also learn that it is through this means of grace that God gives a people that they can be atoned for their sins. Another thing we learn is that Aaron and his sons are to perform these sacrifices for the people. So one, here's the sacrifices, but two, we learn more about the priest. The priest served these mediary role between the people and God. So the people come up, they lay their hands on the animal and kill it. And then the priest goes and sprinkles the blood on the altar. The priest will go and play it up and put it on the altar to burn it and then take parts inside of the tabernacle itself. So really significant things that we learn about atonement, how it works, that people are forgiven and are spared from God's wrath and animals are put in their place. And two, how the priests can mediate for the people. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to point out as well is that it seems to us in our modern day context that going through all of these offerings and then the rest of the book of Leviticus as well, that all of this seems just tedious, legalistic. It seems even barbaric at times. And that might be that it seems that way. Nevertheless, we have to look past our modern context and realize the fact that all of these things are being done because this God is holy. And we have a lack of an understanding of what holiness is, just as the Israelites had a lack of understanding of what holiness was. And so we too, just as the Israelites who would have been first exposed to this book and these rules, we can actually learn something about God and holiness through an understanding 
of the rules and sacrifices and things that God actually sets up for the people to be holy. And so it's not such that God is being legalistic or crazy in setting these things up, but instead he is actually giving them what they need to be holy. God is holy. That means he is other than them. This isn't something that they can take lightly. And therefore these rules aren't overkill, perhaps even underkill as a result of God's grace. So keep that in the back of your mind as we move through them. So we have the various offerings that are set up and those offerings in keeping in line with the idea that the book is a chiasm are going to be mirrored later on with the idea of the feasts. And so later on, we'll get to the idea of the feast and we'll go through them in a little bit more detail. But keep in mind that the book being a chiasm and mirroring itself at the beginning and the end, the sacrifices or the offerings are going to be mirrored with the idea of the feasts. Now, we have the various sacrifices or offerings set up, and now we know what they are. We know how they're to function. Those are going to be consistent throughout the Old Testament, and so we should actually probably pay a good amount of attention to what those are, and it'll help us understand some of the various aspects of the narrative that are going to come up later. What we're going to get into now is one of the biggest things to happen to Israel up until this point, and that is the ordination of the priests. So like we talked about all the way back in Exodus, the people were supposed to go up the mountain when they had gotten to Mount Sinai. God calls everybody up. He says, be a kingdom of priests. The people do not. They choose not to and instead become a nation with priests. But we don't really know what that means up until this point. We don't know how that's to function. And so now we're going to get into what exactly it means that they are a nation with priests, that certain people function as priests before God and others don't. So that's exactly what we get into now in the ordination. Corey, what exactly does this ordination section have in store? Great question. So once we get into chapter eight, by the way, this section, section two, the ordination of the priests goes from chapter eight to chapter 10. And again, this will be mirrored later on. In chapter eight, we see that Aaron and his sons need to be consecrated and ordained. And the question is, well, who's going to ordain the priests? They're the priests. They're the ones who help make other people holy. Well, it is Moses. Moses mediates for the priests. Moses is a priest to the priests. And we talked about this a few weeks back, that this is so strange and yet so amazing that Moses gets this responsibility of being a priest for the priests. Yet he doesn't need a priest to make sacrifices for him. And this goes right back to what Dylan just brought up in Exodus chapter 19. We spent so much time talking about Exodus 19. We keep going back to that because it is so important. While the rest of the camp did not want to go up to meet with God on the mountain, Moses went up. So Moses is walking in relationship with God, but the rest of the people aren't. So we see that these sacrifices and this tabernacle, these are all here just so that God can dwell with his people. Moses sins, he messes up, but yet he doesn't need the sacrifice. He gets to make the sacrifice for the people. So just kind of try to wrap your head around that. You could say that God ordained Moses, but he didn't do it 
in these same ways in which he's doing it for his priests of the priests of Levi and then for the rest of Israel. So just a really strange section and really important to realize that Moses does not need this sacrifice. Moses does not get ordained. In many ways, it has already happened. But then we get into chapter 9, and we see that once Aaron and his sons are ordained, then he goes and makes an offering, and God accepts it. So at chapter 9, things are all hunky-dory, to steal a term from my friend Dylan here. But then chapter 10, we go into a story of Aaron's sons going into the tabernacle, and they fill their censer with fire, and they offer unauthorized fire. At least that's what the text says. It's kind of unclear exactly what that means, but yet they sin. Like the, the very first thing that Aaron's sons get to do from our point of view is that they blow it. Again, we see the shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood. Get this, Leviticus, we're just starting it. We're, we're just getting the idea of the Levitical priesthood. Already we're seeing their shortcomings. And again, we kind of saw their shortcomings when Aaron made a golden calf for the people in Exodus 32. And here Aaron's sons not doing things right. They just got these instructions and they're already blowing it big time. We're saying this is the way in which people will be made holy before God. But on the other side of that same coin, we're seeing that this way is not the best way. So we're always looking back to, oh man, if only they did better at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. But it's not necessarily supposed to make us just look back and be bummed out. Oh, what could have been? Because otherwise we'd just be going back to Genesis chapter 3 all the time. Like, oh man, why did they take the fruit? Why didn't they just obey? But really it's trying to make the reader, us, look forward to, okay, there's going to be a better way. There's going to be a better priesthood. There's going to be a, a better way in instructions for God to dwell with his people. But we're seeing kind of blueprints, almost, you could say. So God wants to dwell with his people. The wages of sin is death. So somehow the sins and death is going to have to be atoned for for people. Leviticus does this a lot. It looks backwards. But then we'll also look forward to laying down blueprints of hope in God's plan. Never, ever is Leviticus supposed to be, oh, if you just do this correctly, this is the end all. No, very early on we see this just isn't going to work out perfectly. Yeah, I do think that that is a good point to make, that God isn't setting these rules up because he expects perfection. I think as a result of our Protestant heritage in America, we get this idea that through the law comes perfection and that the law is set up such that if you keep it, you would be keeping all things perfectly. And, and I mean, to some extent, it's true that keeping the law would be following God and walking with God. Nevertheless, even in the Old Testament, it's set up such that God is gracious to his people, and it's through faith that one is saved. It is not as a result of keeping the law. And so God is being gracious to his humans who he knows to be sinful by setting all, all these things up in the way that he sets them up. If God was expecting everybody to be 
perfect, he would expect them to be much more than he gives in the law. Instead, he actually gives the law as a result of his grace, not because of it being the way to salvation. It has always been that faith or walking with God is the way to salvation in the Old Testament. So now we get into section three, which is ritual purity. And in section three, ritual purity, that's chapters 11 through 15, it gets into this idea or contrast of ideas between that which is clean and that which is unclean. And right off the bat, I want to point out the idea that clean and unclean are not sinful and unsinful. So if you are clean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are without sin. And if you are unclean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are with sin. I mean, I guess in a sense, clean does mean that you are following God's commands rightly, because that means that you are able to come before God. If you are clean, you can come before God. If you are unclean, however, then you cannot. If you come before God as someone who has been made unclean by one of the various stipulations here, then it would be considered a sin. So if you come before God unclean, you are sinning, but just being in the state of uncleanliness is not necessarily a sin in itself. Nevertheless, it is a separation between you and your ability to come before God. So you would probably want to mitigate your status of uncleanliness if at all possible. The various stipulations that God gives are the difference between various clean and unclean foods. And so there are things that one can eat that will defile one such that one becomes unclean and certain things that they can eat and be remaining clean. And so the very famous example would be pork, for instance, would be an unclean food, whereas various other meats, cleft hooves, things like that, you can eat and those would be considered clean meats. If you eat an unclean animal, then you would be rendered unclean. Another thing that it gets into is purification after childbirth. And so as a result of childbirth, you are actually rendered unclean. And so because of this, you need to purify oneself. And so that is something that I failed to mention is this idea of purification. So if you are unclean, you need to purify yourself and that will render you clean again. So once one gives birth to a child, one is unclean. If somebody has sexual relations, for instance, they are unclean after that for a certain period of time, etc. Next is the fact that there's various skin diseases that can also render you unclean. If you've read through the New Testament and wondered why the lepers, for instance, are outside of Israel and everybody is afraid of them, it's because these lepers have this skin disease that renders them unclean. If anybody were to touch them, they would also be rendered unclean. So skin diseases can render one unclean. Then chapter 14 gives the purification for various skin diseases. So say, for instance, you have a skin disease and it heals. How then can I actually be purified and once again made clean? It involves a long process of going to the priest, having the priest verify that the skin disease has actually been healed. If it has been healed, then there's various ceremonial washings that one must undergo. And then one is rendered clean. Chapter 15 gets into the purification for bodily discharges. I already mentioned the sexual relations idea or various other bodily discharges that can render one unclean. If you do have one of these things that renders you unclean, chapter 15 talks about how one can actually go about purifying oneself once again, being rendered clean. And then finally, chapter 17 is kind of thrown in there at the back end as well. 
And so that deals with the proper place to worship. And so all of these things, again, dealing with this idea of cleanliness and uncleanliness, it seems as though it's barbaric to us, perhaps. It's very foreign concepts to Christians or even non-Christians who are in our American context. It seems very legalistic. Nevertheless, the idea is that you must be holy, Israel, to come before a holy God. And being holy is following that which God has commanded that you should follow to be made clean before you come before him. That is really what is being brought to the front here in this section. Cord, do you have anything else to add to this section? Kind of like a sum up. God wants his people to be different. And so he's seen to have something set apart is synonymous with being holy. We saw the first use of the word holy in Genesis chapter 2 where God made the seventh day and he set it apart from the other six days. And the the separation in language that he used there is that the first six days are common days. They're for work. The seventh day is a holy day. It is for rest. There's a distinction between the common and then that which is holy. So, I mean, some of these foods to eat, like you weren't supposed to eat crab or lobster. Some places, that's a delicacy. So why not? Well. Who knows quite why God doesn't give us reasons, but the very least we see, just be different in these ways. When you're different in these ways from what you eat to what you wear to the way in which you live, just be different. Trust and obey me and you will be holy. So there's a lot of people who want to justify God's reasoning for these things. And I'm sure there are great reasons. I'm sure there's great apologetics. I've heard a lot of great apologetics for why would God not want people to eat pig? It's like, well, pigs are kind of dirty. Okay, but that's not the point. The point is trust God and be separate from the other nations. That's going to be a a big idea of holiness, to be separate morally, ritually from those around you. And from there, we get to chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. And this is the center point of the book. Now, I mentioned already at the beginning of the episode that Day of Atonement is mentioned at the end, the last section of the book, where it talks about the appointed feasts. And while Day of Atonement is mentioned there, it's very brief. So here in the middle of the book, Day of Atonement is given a lot of space. And in Day of Atonement, we see that this is a day out of the year in which the priest gets a bull and two goats. The priest offers the bull for himself to make atonement. And that's just part of in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, the priest to make atonement for themselves, they offer a bull. So a bull is for the priests always. And then for the people in general, it'll be something out of the flock, like a lamb or a goat. Okay, it seems to be going well with things like the burnt and sin offerings. But what's going to be different here? So Aaron makes atonement for himself or his sons make atonement for themselves and for their house. And then he takes two goats and they cast lots, which is essentially like getting the short end of the stick. So you break a stick. This goat gets the lot of being killed. What they do is they put their hands on the goat and they kill it, just like how they do with the other sacrifices. And this goat makes atonement for sin. They spread the blood on the altar take out the liver and the lobes and the intestines, all that stuff that we've already seen. But then there's a second goat. And this goat, Aaron symbolically puts his hand on this goat for all the people 
and confesses all the sin and iniquity of the entire camp. And once he confesses the sin of the entire congregation onto the camp, then there's someone who has been made ready. So someone is consecrated to then take the goat on a walk out into the desert, far enough away from camp to where the goat won't wander back in. Because it's really important that the goat gets out of camp, that it's taking the sins of the camp away, out into the wilderness. The goat is let free, and then the goat is just to wander its days out in the wilderness, carrying the sins outside of the camp. So kind of like the other sacrifices, very symbolic. The sins of the priest, first of all, is put on the bull. This first goat is killed to take the sins of the people. But then there's a second goat who's let free, and these sins are walked out of camp. I don't know. I'm just blown away every time when I come to passages like this in Leviticus. Like, oh, this is like the gospel. But in Leviticus, that doesn't make sense. I didn't know that we're seeing such beautiful pictures of God and his big plan in Leviticus. But yet Leviticus is the book to go to to learn about atonement and to learn about why did Jesus need to die on the cross? We get those answers here in Leviticus. It is so easy to look at the book of Leviticus as a book of rules or as a book of legalistic jargon and craziness. It doesn't have any application today. It doesn't tell us anything particularly interesting about the mind of God. But that's just so far from the truth in what Leviticus is actually trying to do. And just the very nature of the fact that there is at the center of the book, the idea of atonement tells you everything you really need to know about what Leviticus is trying to do. And so at the beginning of the podcast, and then periodically throughout, we've mentioned that ultimately the thesis is regarding holiness. So God wants these people to be holy, like he is holy. But the question is, why? Yeah, it would be beneficial to be holy. Yeah, it'd be beneficial to be able to access God. But what exactly is going on here? And ultimately, this book is highlighting the idea of what God is ultimately trying to do with these people. What is God trying to do with the Israelites? Was he just trying to save them from exile in Egypt and get glory? Well, I mean, partly he was trying to save them and get glory, but he's trying to bring a people back to himself and atone them from what they have already done in sinning against him at the very beginning in Genesis. And for those of you who don't know, atoning is actually something where it reverses that which had been done. So we saw that the people humanity fell at the fall. And so from that point, it's been kind of this uphill battle back to God, back to the garden. And so this is that back to God moment for these Israelites. He's saying there is a means by which you can be atoned for, that your sins can be rectified such that you can come before me and actually be holy. That holiness has a meaning as a result of their being able to be atoned for. So that being said, let's go ahead and move on a little bit and jump into section four. We got to the center of the book. Now is the last couple sections that mirror the first couple sections that we talked about. So in section four, it's 18 through 20. It talks about moral purity. And so moral purity is something that is of interest to God, that these people should act in a certain way. And that has been the case ever since the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I'm talking about Genesis, that God has a vested interest in how people act, that these people who reflect him should act in a certain way. So in chapter 18, the entire chapter deals with sexual immorality. So what does it mean to be sexually moral and what does it mean to be sexually immoral? 
That's chapter 18. Chapter 19 has a bunch of varying laws and rules and things on the idea of holiness. However, at the end of chapter 19, that is particularly prominent and particularly important for this book, and we've highlighted it already a number of times in the podcast, is the idea that all of these things revolve around love. And namely, not just love for Israel, because these things are being given to Israel. These laws are being given to Israel. And so it might be really tempting to read through Leviticus really quickly and think that God cares about Israel and that all other nations are going to be wiped out as sinners. No, not at all. Nor is that what God even said when he initiated the covenant first with Abraham that started this whole thing. Instead, when God talked with Abraham, God said, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And so through Israel, the world is to be blessed. So as a result, these moral purity rules and laws are all revolving around this idea of actually loving not just Israel, but the foreigner as well. So through these laws, Israel is going to learn to be morally pure, such that they can actually fulfill that blessing, hopefully, theoretically, of blessing the world. And then lastly, in chapter 20, we get into the punishments for moral impurity. So if you fail to be moral, you will be punished as a result. And that's chapter 20. Something that's kind of helpful to me as I'm realizing how moral purity lines up with ritual purity and what's the difference. It almost seems like the ritual purity laws have to do with dealing with God and, and his special instructions to be right in his eyes. And then the moral purity laws kind of circle around how to deal with other people because I don't want to be misleading people by saying, oh, this is moral purity and the other one isn't about moral purity. It, it is like to do wrong in God's eyes, to go and enter his presence while unclean, that's morally wrong. But that's what we mean by calling these sections ritual purity and moral purity, just kind of more so dealing with God and his instructions, especially around his tabernacle. So ritually, what do you do around this building? And so even it goes into like the place to worship and then moral purity. This is what you do in relation to others. I, I just wanted to clean that up because I didn't want listeners to think that morality doesn't have anything to do with chapters 11 through 15 and 17, but only in 18 through 20. But that, that's the reason for our differentiation in our titles of those different purities. But otherwise, great summation. Uh, that was just something I was just thinking about as you're talking. But let's keep going. And we're going to get into now the qualifications for the priests. This is chapters 21 and 22. And again, this mirrors the ordination of the priests in chapters 8 through 10. The qualifications of the priests in our podcast episode on this section, we talked about the qualifications for the priests sound a lot like Paul's instructions in letters like Timothy and Titus when he gives instructions for qualifications for pastors or elders. He starts with the home. And in the same way here in Leviticus, God starts with instructions for the home. So the priests must be morally pure. Kind of like the section we just got done with, they need to be morally pure within their homes. right? So everything needs to begin with their wife and with their children. And in all those areas, they must be above reproach. And then secondly, in chapter 22, the priest must be ritually pure. Kind of like that section we talked about before Day of Atonement for the general population 
of Israel. Well, in the same way, the priests are held to that same standard. I guess a shared truth out of that is the priests can't ask the people to do anything that they themselves aren't willing to do. In these qualifications for priests in chapter 22, it's repeated for the priests that they cannot serve as priests with a skin disease. If they have a skin disease, they're taken out of camp, just like any average Israelite. This gets important as we look into the Gospels. And this is why Jesus is so upset with the priests of his day and the teachers of the law of his day. Just one example, Luke eleven forty six. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. One of the big ideas that God had in mind for his priests is that they're not to do anything less than what they would want the people to do. If anything, they have more responsibility. They have more weight on their shoulders to lead and to teach. And so in Jesus' day, when we see priests not willing to lead people in such a way and putting burdens on others that they aren't willing to do, like Jesus is upset. Because that goes against th this heart that God had in mind for his priests. So just a, a little shared truth that we get out of that section. But again, pretty cool just how when we get into Leviticus, we see Paul not just making something new up, but he's going back to priestly instructions for the leaders of the church. Let's go ahead and keep moving on and jump into section six. Section six is chapters 23 through 25. And now we get into the ritual feasts. And so again, this mirrors back with the ritual sacrifices or offerings. And so here, Corey and I noted that's really interesting and fascinating. There are seven total feasts that are mentioned. The section starts out with talking about the Sabbath. And again, that's been a thing that's been mentioned multiple times in the book is the idea of the Sabbath. And so it reiterates that idea I don't think we've mentioned it yet on the podcast today. So the Sabbath is really this idea that God has instilled for humanity such that they can actually rest from their work. Nevertheless, it is commanded that they do this, that they keep the Sabbath holy and that they worship God on this Sabbath, that they rest from their work and they have a designated time to worship God. So the ritual feasts play a very similar role then. They are designated times that it is appropriate to worship God. So it's always appropriate to worship God, obviously. However, in our busy schedules, how many of us often forget to actually make time to worship God? Probably a lot of us. I know myself is included in that. A lot of us there. That being said, God has initiated seven feasts here that the Israelites can utilize as designated time to worship God, that there's no questions asked. This is the appropriate time. So that being said, these seven feasts the idea of the feast go all the way back to Genesis. We talked about how in Genesis 1, when God's actually creating the world, that he creates the sun and the moon as indicators of the feasts. So here are the feasts. The first one is the Passover feast. So the Passover feast, it celebrates the time when Israel was in Egypt and then when they were being freed and God saved them and passed over killing the firstborn of any Israelite. So the Passover feast, the feast of unleavened bread, feast of the first fruits, feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, the day of atonement itself, and the feast of booths. I think it's just 
important to see that God is speaking in sevens here. You know, God created the world in seven days. The seventh day was the Sabbath. Here, God starts out with the Sabbath and then gives seven feasts. In one way or the other, they're kind of pointing back to some sort of Sabbath rest or just remembering and celebrating God. And again, these things look backwards to things that God has done and also look forward. And something that the Sabbath looks forward to is the final rest, the rest in which God will give his people. And so in many ways, coming into the promised land is talked about and thought about as like being this rest. But of course, that's not going to be the final rest God has in mind. The final rest is going to be given through Jesus. Spoiler alert. It, within that section, we keep going. Chapter 24 gets into some items within the tabernacle, but not all of them. Strangely enough, it's only about the table of showbread and the lampstand. And those two things are things that Jesus himself claims to be. He claims to be the light and the bread of life. So interesting that Jesus himself claims to be those things. And here in Leviticus, those are the only things that are echoed. These, these things have been talked about at the ending of Exodus. At the end of chapter 24, we see more punishments for sin. And this last section of chapter 24 gets the idea across that these punishments are really just punishments. They're equal. This is the famous section in Leviticus where it says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. This makes people think before they go and punch someone out of anger, they have to think and ask themselves, do I want to get punched back? Or what if I take things too far and knock out his tooth? Do I really want to go in tomorrow to some judge and they have to knock out my tooth as just punishment? So it really makes people think, how do I want to be treated out of this? The last item in this section, chapter 25, is really cool. And I call this chapter in this section, Redemption Times. And Redemption Times starts with the Sabbath year. So there's a whole year that is the seventh year. No surprise, we're back into talking about sevens. The seventh year for people shall be holy, and they will rest on this year from working their land. And so we see God in his great love also loves and cares for the land and wants the land to receive rest. So just as people need rest every seventh day, the land needs rest every seventh year. So trust God. And on the sixth year, you know, save up double. After that, we see this year of Jubilee. So it's not just one year that people are going to have to save up. On the year of Jubilee, if you count out seven times seven years, so the 49th year, which is seven times seven, there is a Sabbath year. But then the 50th year will be a year of Jubilee. For that year, that sixth year before the year of Sabbath and year of Jubilee, you need to save up for the seventh year and the eighth year. Get double because that year the land gets two years of rest. And then after it talks about the land getting rest, it talks about property being redeemed. So if someone sold their property because they were poor at the year of Jubilee, they get their land back at no cost. Let's say someone is really poor and they sold themselves and their family as slaves to someone else. Well, at the year of Jubilee, they get freed and their lands. And so we see even in these instructions, people have to weigh how much things are valued to be sold for because 
everyone knows at the year of Jubilee, all things will be put back into their original order. So we see God's love in some really strange ways. He cares for the land and he cares for people and his whole congregation. He doesn't want people to get rich at the expense of their brother or sister. And he doesn't want one tribe or one family to get a bunch of land and take over and have a monopoly over everyone else. He realizes that, you know, some people will be successful more than others, but there will come the time at the year Jubilee, which just about everyone will see in their lifetime, this resetting. Just an amazing instruction by God, always wanting his people to be successful together, always wanting his people to have an inheritance of land and to not lose it. This is a, a really big deal. At the end of all of this, th those are the six main sections that are mirrored in the chiasm. We end with talking about the land, and then we get into the last section. We talked briefly in the podcast already about this idea of covenant, and we talked about specifically the covenant that is made at Sinai. And in the covenant that's made at Sinai, it's what's called a conditional covenant. And I went over this in the last podcast a little bit. In a conditional covenant, there are stipulations for keeping the covenant. That means that if you do the, the stipulations of the covenant, what the covenant says to do, you will be blessed. If, however, you fail to do what the covenant says you must do, you will be cursed. And so at the ending here, you get a reiteration of blessings and curses for this covenant. And so God has been very gracious in giving this covenant. We've already talked about that. We've also talked about the idea that God is not giving these laws so that you can be saved. It is actually through faith that you can be saved, that even in the Old Testament, that they, Israel, could be saved. Nevertheless, God has established a covenant with the Israelites on the basis of Abraham's faith and on the basis of their faith. And if they are faithful to the covenant, and faithful to God, they'll be blessed. We already know that it's probably not going to end up that way. Uh, and then there's this weird section on vows at the very end. We talked about it briefly last week. It seems a bit out of place, but nevertheless, it should stand to reason that you should not vow, especially in the name of this God that's holy, if you don't intend to keep your vow. So that wraps up the book. And again, going back to the beginning, the thesis of the book is, be holy like Yahweh is holy. And in being holy, you are going to be a separate nation. You are going to be separated and set apart from all of the other nations of the world. And so through being separated, you can show the rest of the world what it is like to live under Yahweh. You can show the world what it is to serve Yahweh. And you can show the world who Yahweh is and how Yahweh has blessed you. And therefore, by doing that, you can draw other nations to Yahweh. And so that's the ultimate goal of Israel, is to be a light to the other nations, to be separated from the nations, and then in turn, to draw the other nations to Yahweh so that they too can have atonement and be in relationship with Yahweh. Maybe I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself. Up until this point, the only thing that we know really for sure is that through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We will come to find, however, that that includes this idea of atonement even for the other nations. And so 
Israel is not set apart and told, hey, you are going to be the only nation and you must kill every other nation and wipe them out and be the only nation that serves Yahweh. No, instead, love everybody. Love the foreigner that's among you. If something happens that is unjust, make it just, including for the foreigner. Be a nation that is loving and just. And so that's really what the book of Leviticus is telling the people is to be holy, to be loving, to be just, to be like God. And then in becoming like God, they will be able to emulate God. Corey, anything else on that? Yeah, that's an awesome summary of this book. But, you know, I was thinking about chapter 27 because, you know, me and Dylan are thinking like, man, 27 is kind of a weird ending. It doesn't seem to fit in really well. It seems like an odd ending. But looking at chapter 26, the blessings and cursings for disobedience or obedience, you know, one, it's the covenant, the big covenant with God to Israel. But then 27, it seems like this idea of little promises being made. So it talks about vows. One of the words used a lot in chapter 27 is dedicated. So if you dedicate something to Yahweh, you better give it. Like, don't change your mind. If you give something really good, it's like, oh, wait, I want to keep that really good thing. Like, too late. You vowed it. You dedicated it to Yahweh. You better give it to him. And it's this, I feel like this opportunity to be like God. So God makes covenants and he keeps his covenants. So in chapter 26, we have the terms of the covenant. If you do not follow, you will get all these curses. By the way, I think it's really funny, too, that God makes the part about curses or disobedience twice as long than the blessings for obedience. I feel like that's kind of how humans need to learn. You can't just say, hey, do the right thing, especially to like kids, but even in adults, I guess, like here's a prime example. Here's all the things that you'll be punished with if you don't do it. Okay, fine. I guess I'll choose what's right because of the punishments. Back to chapter 27, it seems like the people have an opportunity to be like God. So if God is a God who loves to make covenants and keep covenants, like he always keeps his covenant, in the same way, people have the opportunity to make vows or promises and keep them before God. So it goes from this huge promise between God and this whole people group. And Dylan just mentioned how important this people group is to all nations, the whole world, and to God's entire plan for the cosmos. But getting down to the individual, you have the opportunity to to make a promise to God and keep it. Be like God. What we like to do in the Scripture Chronicles, we like to give our main idea of the book. That is, we look at the entire book I want to condense the teachings of this book down to one sentence, shared truth. That is the shared truth that this book has with us today, because we're surely coming into contact with some instructions that literally don't have a bearing on our life. Like we can eat bacon. We can wear clothes of two different kinds of fabrics. That's not something we're trying to push. We're not trying to push for a very literal obedience of this law. Instead, there's some shared truth that God is trying to get across that is true for all ages, for all people groups, Israelite or not. So the big universal shared truth that Leviticus is sharing that we think is that Yahweh is holy, yet he gives a way for sinful people to become holy so that he may dwell with them. 
So there's a few things here. One, it talks about the character of God. He is holy. Two, it talks about the character of people that they are sinful. But yet, in this relationship between God and people, God can make people holy. And the whole reason for Leviticus, like we talked about in the beginning of this episode, there was a problem at the end of Exodus. The people cannot enter the tabernacle. So God is giving these instructions, as burdensome as they may seem, the whole reason for these instructions is that God wants to dwell with his people. It is for relationship. Let me read this main idea again with all those things in mind. And the main idea of Leviticus, again, is Yahweh is holy, yet he gives a way for sinful people to become holy so that he may dwell with them. If we start thinking of Leviticus as this book to teach and instruct us, not just about a history of an ancient law code with this ancient people group, we're going to get so much more out of it as you guys have seen if you've been through the entirety of this podcast through Leviticus and before. Dylan, is there anything else you want to talk about in regards to shared truth or Leviticus? No, I don't think so. Let's go ahead and wrap up there. Guys, thank you for listening to the episode today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you guys did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a review wherever you listen. Those reviews really help out the podcast, help out the algorithm so that the podcast can get more visibility, more people can be blessed by it. Also, if you guys do enjoy the podcast, uh, check out our other content. We have a YouTube channel, blogs, a bunch of other stuff as well. That can all be found on the website, www.thebibleisastory.com. You can also access all that content through the Facebook page and stay up to date with what's coming out. Facebook page, the handle is Scripture Chronicles. If you'd like to get a little bit more involved and you enjoy the show and you want to support it, you can do that through the Patreon page or you can do that through PayPal and you can access both of that on the website and clicking on donate. Finally, guys, if you want to talk or ask any questions, the email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Guys, we thank you for tuning into this episode today. Welcome to the end of Leviticus. Shalom, adios. Shalom, adios. Leviticus as well.